Hi, I'm Georgia Fumanti, and you're listening to Follow Your Dream podcast with the great Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Alexander DaCosta, internationally renowned violinist and conductor, and he lives in Montreal, Canada. He's one of only a handful of artists in the entire world who conduct and play violin at the same time. We'll talk about that. He's performed in more than 2,000 concerts in over 30 countries with a host of major orchestras. And he's the music director of the Lingale Symphony Orchestra and the artistic director of the Stradivaria Festival. And he plays a 1727 Stradivarius violin, which is just a few years older than my Fender Precision Bass that I play. And in the middle of this episode, we're going to do a song fest where we're going to play some works that feature Alexander, and you're going to get the backstories and all of that good stuff. And as you know, I like to feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I've chosen the song Ma Petite Fleur, which translates as My Little Flower. It's the only song I've ever given a French title to. Don't ask me why, I just thought it fit. And I chose this song because Alex, of course, is from Montreal, where they speak French. So I thought it worked. So Alex DaCosta, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you for having me. All right. You know, in reading your background information, there are certain things that just jumped out at me. Number one, that you were already a prodigy at age nine on the violin and the piano. When did you start playing? Oh, super early. I was uh, five years old when I started with the violin and six years old with the piano. So you can tell that this was the it's been my life forever. Uh, arts is in my family. My mom's a painter and my dad is a theater actor. So it's always been something very natural to just pick up an instrument and play. Uh, but it was done in a serious way in my, in my family. And, um, and yeah, it was my passion. So when you, you find your passion very early, then it's, it's more easy to just continue and have, uh, have your dreams come true in a way. But neither of your parents was a musician so am i correct about that no my mom is a is a is a pianist actually but she's a, a teacher so uh ah. she wasn't a concert pianist per se but she, uh, she was playing all the time uh when i was a kid uh, she was playing chopin and so on so you can really think of my family as a very artsy family so so kind of a a, a, a nice terroir to grow uh, up into, you know? Good for you. You know, I started 
piano lessons when I was about the same age. Uh, my father was a trumpet player. And he said, right from the beginning, you're going to have to start playing piano. I started playing piano. But unlike you, and I want to ask you about this, I didn't want to play the piano. I didn't want to practice. I wanted to be out in the street playing ball with my friends. I finally, after about a year, I went to my parents and I said, okay, that's enough. I just don't want to do it anymore. And to their credit, they said, okay, you have to pick another instrument. And I chose the trumpet. And I kept playing the trumpet through high school. But tell me, you're five years old, you're six years old. You really had that passion? Nobody had to make you practice? I think you always need a little bit of help to practice because practicing one day is okay. But practicing every day, that's very difficult. And you know, that's exactly, I mean, you. Yeah, I don't know um, where you were based when you were a kid, but we are in Montreal. So half the year it's darker. Uh, we have a very long winter here. So this kind of helps to practice, you know, because you're, you're at home and, and it gives you, but if it's super nice outside and it's, it's 30 degrees uh, Celsius, then you want to be out with your friends, of course. And then the practice is very um, secondary in the priorities. Right. So uh, my mom was very good at explaining that if I want to do this, there is no option to just do it, uh, on, on a, a sporadic basis. It needs to be very regular. So I think this was uh, embedded in my mind very early and it stayed. And that's why, you know, going through my teenage years, it was just like part of my scheduling and my methods of living. So, but my, I have an eight year old and he practices the piano. Uh, and it's difficult as a parent to tell him to go to the piano and do the half hour little practice that he has to do at his age. Even just a half hour is, is a big deal sometimes, right? And I, I feel terrible to have to push and to have to, to ask him to do it. But in a way, uh, it's just the, the, the way I can contact him or communicate with him to tell him to do it needs to be proper. If I can find a way to just tell him, look, if you don't learn practice, then we're going to stop all of this and you can do something else or you can pick another instrument or you can pick another activity. But I think it's the same thing with music or with sports or with anything that if, if one wants to become good at something, there needs to be some training that is regular. And uh, yeah, it's very difficult also, <laughs> even more than before with all the, uh, you know, the electronics, iPads, iPhones and all of this and the netflix and the tiktok and everything you know the kids are like Ooh. a lot of options a lot of yes. options but you know same thing for me it was my mother that made me practice and she said to me one day you're gonna thank me and you know what that's exactly what happened i before she passed i said thank you mom if it wasn't for you making me practice i probably would have stopped as well so i'm glad to see that you're encouraging your son to practice and to play. And I'm still amazed that at such an early age, you didn't take up just one instrument, you took up two instruments. Why the options for the two? How did that come about? A very good question. And I, it's difficult for me to answer because I don't remember what was in my mind at that time. You know, why two instruments? Why did it not, could it not be just one instrument? But I think it has to do with the fact that 
I loved the violin because uh, my mother was listening to Yehudi Menuhin, this great violinist, and I met him when I was five years old. We snuck in uh, a concert venue where he was playing a concert and we arrived right uh, in front of him and he spoke to me. And uh, you know, that, that particular meeting was, was very life changing for me. So I wanted to stick to the violin because of that. But then there was the piano which my mother played very often and she plays very beautifully. So it, it had to be like a, a, an inner battle in me to, to do the instruments. And I think what my mom thought is, well, you know, music is music. An instrument is just a medium. So if I have to do half an hour of violin and then half an hour of piano, it's not like I just played half an hour on an instrument. It's actually one hour of music one hour of, of, of reading music, of making music, of, of understanding music. So this all counts as one. And it, it was actually very clever. Um, I just don't know how she managed to make me practice all those hours when I was a kid, because I see it now. It's so difficult to do it with my kids. So, I mean, she must have had an amazing psychology for children, you know? You're absolutely right. And, you know, with my kids, I had, I had two uh, girls and as they were growing up, we had them start on piano. But like so many kids, they decided they didn't want to continue. And now that they're grown adults, they come back at me all the time. Why didn't you make us practice? Why did you let us uh, give up the piano? I said, look, what can I say? Like, and as you indicated today, it's probably even more difficult because they have so many options, kids. So you have to really have that stick to itness in order to really, you know, become as proficient as you did. I congratulate you for that. Mm, thank you. And then on top of all of this, you're playing two instruments at a world-class level. Then you decide you want to be a conductor as well. Where did that come from? Same philosophy. You know, if you can play the piano and you can play the violin, and you can uh, defend a, a way of playing in front of a, a big orchestra and, and lead your way through this kind of concerts in life, why not be a conductor? It's the same thing, it's the, it's the, the next step, let's say, because so often I, I gave 2000 concerts as a soloist, you know, and most of them with as soloists with orchestra. So when you're in front of an orchestra, yes, there is a conductor that relays the information from the soloist to the orchestra. But the reality is that the soloist relays exactly what he wants to the conductor and the orchestra. And the conductor is there to assist. And I can say it in, in a serious way because I know this is what's happening with my soloists now. You know, when I have guest soloists, I we are making music, the bunch of us, not just the soloist talking to the conductor and the conductor giving the information to the musician it doesn't work like this. It's all we, we want to serve our soloist. So he leads us through everything. The energy comes from him. The, the tempo comes from him or her, I'm sorry. And, but you know, so basically the soloist is conducting the orchestra. So then after when you just put the violin down and take a baton and conduct an orchestra, it's actually the exact same thing. And plus I was concert master in Europe for a few years. So 
all the symphonies I played in the seat of the concertmaster. So I know these pieces and I know what, what to look for, what to listen to. And the fact that sometimes I just don't have to play the violin, just conduct actually gives me more time to, to bring out stuff in the orchestra. But basically a conductor's work is before the concert, not during the concert. Before the concert, you have to deal with a little society. You know, everybody has a say, everybody has a voice. You need to put some order in this, make the, the, the rehearsals efficient. And then at the concert, the, the, the conductor should not be there to, to basically uh, be in the way of the musicians. Just help. We're just there to help during the concert. But the, the, the real sound, the real music is coming from the musicians. So that's also why a lot of my concerts I conduct from the violin because I want to lead. I want to be um, the, the one that proposes a way to play uh, some wonderful uh, classical music works. But I also want to play and make some sounds with my colleagues. So I play the violin and this is not new. You know, um, uh, Strauss in Vienna, they, they're, they're doing this for all of their concerts. Um, it's called the Stegeiger, the, the, the play and conduct way. So Ste is in German for uh, standing up and Geiger is also in German for the violinist. So it's the standing uh, violinist or the standing conductor, you know? And, and so I, I conduct most of my, uh, my concerts like this and I enjoy it tremendously. And I cannot say that it's easier or harder. It's just, I have to speak less to my musicians during the rehearsal because I can show them where I'm going with my music, with my bow and my sound and everything. But then at, in the, during the concert, I kind of have double task. I need to play and I need to lead at the same time. So it's very different and, and from what uh, we know now, um, you know, about the conductors. But as I said, I didn't invent this. You know, there was no symphonies that were ever conducted with a baton before uh, the, the, the 1800s and late in the 1800s. You know, Beethoven never saw a conductor with a baton. He was conducting oh, his own symphonies from the piano, you know, and wow. sometimes was the solo violin as the concertmaster that would lead the symphony. But what we see with a, a conductor like this is, is uh, and, and when we see this with the Mozart symphony, it's, it's very unlikely that it was like this because uh, the, the conductor was not the figure that we know today. This was invented later. And actually it's Spohr, which is some, a conductor that was after Beethoven and, and, and you know, a, a romantic composer. And he wrote to his wife, he said, I've been invited to, to conduct this orchestra in London and the orchestra was so bad that I had to put down my violin and just keep the bow to give them the timing. And so this is how the conductor was born. And the, 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 you know, the, the bow is the baton. So I since the, the bow was not necessary anymore, they shortened it to a short you know, stick time. of wood and that became the baton. You know, it, it's a fascinating story you just told because, you know, nowadays the conductor is like the superstar when the orchestra is playing. I live in Western Massachusetts and we have the Boston Symphony at a place called Tanglewood. And of course, the Boston Symphony is a very famous symphony and it's been conducted by everybody from Leonard Bernstein to others. And 
as I said, the conductor is almost thought of as the superstar. They are the ones that get all the applause. And yet what you're really saying is they're kind of putting on a show for everybody. It's really, you know, the soloist and the other musicians that kind of put it, put it all together. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm not definitely not going to make friends with lots of my colleagues by saying that, but the image. All right, I said it for you. Don't worry. Yeah, the image of the conductor has been, it's not necessarily the idea of the musicians to do this. It's really the idea of the non-musicians. Because, you know, when you need to sell a concert, you need to sell a tour, you need an image, you need an ambassador. And the best ambassador is the conductor. It's show business. It's show business. Come on. Exactly. So, and, and then once you give uh, this kind of attention to a musician like the conductor, we're, we all have egos. So when people say, oh, it's amazing, it's amazing, it's amazing, then you start believing it. And once you believe it, then there is no end of what the ego can do for you. And I think this is what's been happening with, uh, you know, decades of conductors. We've inflated the, the, the conductor's mind so much that the conductor forgot that he is there to keep things together, but not make the music. Now the conductor thinks, I make the music. I'm the, the reason why all of this is, is happening. And the musicians, we believe it because we've been learning this way from the start. But I've been trying to go back and say, a conductor is a musician that helps other musicians, right? So he is no more nor no less than the other musicians on stage. That's why I'm saying the, the real task of a conductor is off stage. It's at the rehearsal time that you, you need to, to make sure everything goes. And it's not necessarily about music. Sometimes it's about the human connection between the different musicians because not everybody is in, or in an orchestra is best friends. So you need to, to you know, manage a lot of people so that they can play in harmony together. There's also projects. The best conductors are the ones that make the best projects. So if you think of a person like Kent Nagano, for example, that was here in Montreal at the Montreal Symphony for a couple of decades, he is as much a great conductor as he is a great businessman. So he would conduct his rehearsals and concerts and, and, and give as much time to the business side of his position, you know, going to raise uh, money and support for the orchestra, uh, preparing tours, using his contacts and, and his resources to make projects that would make the orchestra grow. So he helped the orchestra much more backstage, in my very humble opinion, than, than on stage. And then you have many great uh, examples of, of these fantastic conductors. So what is, what is a conductor? Is it somebody that waves the baton in the perfect way? Or is it somebody that inspires, leads, and, uh, and brings something to the table by giving much, much more than just music and or the study or preparation, mental preparation for a concert? So this is, this is a big, big question. And, and, and we could be talking about this for hours, but I believe that the, the, the conductor needs to be in a way humble. And my way of 
keeping this humility is by taking my violin all the time for the concerts. Because when I only wave the baton in front of 60, 70 musicians and they play fantastic and it's super loud and then there's a lot of people clapping for me to do this, this is too easy. You, your head goes like, you know, like this, it goes to your head. You're like, yeah, I'm, I'm the king. All right, you know, Alex, you're shattering all of our mythology around the conducting profession. <laughs> But it's okay. You know, I was always curious because when the reviewers review a symphony orchestra recording, they always talk about this conductor's way of doing the Mozart piece or that conductor's. There's always, you know, those nuances that they attribute to the conductor. How much of that is real? It's a difficult question because, of course, the conductor can say, can you please play softer here and can you please play louder and, and faster and this and that. And the musicians basically react to what the conductor is asking. But in a way, if you have bad musicians, you cannot play great. And if you have great musicians, it's very difficult to play badly. You know? So the conductor has a little bit of a say, but the magic doesn't come from the conductor. It comes from the connection between the human beings. And if you have a wonderful conductor that shows wonderful music, but the, the, the great musicians do not want to work together, it's gonna to be an average recording or concert. And, you know, I have many examples of that. You know, we have, I've played with very famous uh, orchestras and they all, the, the musicians all say the same. Sometimes it's a very famous conductor that we don't really want to play with and the orchestra sounds eh, okay professional but there's no emotions yeah and then sometimes come a, a younger conductor or somebody that is very humble and really wants to to share the passion with the musicians and there's something that is connected with the musicians and then the music happens and it's magical and, and all of this so um it's difficult to know what i can tell you is that the more the musicians are feeling, uh, how can I say, are, are feeling that they are, are, are free and that their work is appreciated, the better they play and the better the concert and the recording. So yes, there is a human resource aspect to being a conductor. It's not necessarily what media made it of the con conductors, you know, because media said geniuses and this and that. But we never talk about what is a real good conductor. Is it somebody that really knows how to wave the baton? Or is it somebody that has such a good understanding of the psychology of the bunch of people, of great professionals in front of him, that he uh, makes them play together? We have now found the answer here. I appreciate everything that you're saying. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller. Live at Steel Stacks is the new five-song EP by my band, Project Grand Slam. It absolutely captures the band at the top of our game. Musicians and reviewers alike have praised the recording, saying things like captivating music, Project Grand Slam burns down the house. Virtuoso musicians and such a great band. 
You can stream live at Steel Stacks on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or any of the other streaming platforms. And you can download it from the PGS Store. The links are all in the show notes to this episode. Please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so yet. You can do so, and you can listen to our 100-plus episodes just by going to our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. So join me each episode as we go on a world tour to my listeners in 200 countries. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. I want to go quickly to the second part of our interview here, which is the song fest that I really love to do. Right now, we're playing underneath my voice, Pachelbel, with the festival Stradivaria. Tell me your impressions of that piece and that orchestra. Well, you know, it's it's, it's a bit of a a joke for for musicians because Pachel Bell is something that everybody knows, and there's a thousand versions and every everything, and it's the one piece that we're always asked to play for weddings or uh, you know when you ask somebody, do you know classical music? They're like, yeah, I know the canon by uh, Pachel Bell. So. What I did with my friends, we did a special version and we mixed, you know, rock music and jazz music and new age music. And we did a, a version that is absolutely crazy. And then we called it the canons, you know, with an S of Pachelbel, because most people, when they come up to us and they say, can you play the canons? But and it's, it's actually not a plural, it's, it's, it's a singular. So, so when I do the shows, I say, I give I, I do a little quiz. I'm like, okay, who's who thinks it's the canon without an S and who who says it's with the S? And then most 90% of people say it's with the S, you know? And I'm like, well, you're wrong, but tonight you're not, because I'm gonna play the canons with an S for you as a great premiere in this venue. So and it, it's always fun to do it, you know. So it's just a joke. <laughs> Good for you. Okay, second one we're listening to now is your version of Amazing Grace with the uh, Longueil Orchestra. Tell us about that. Well, 
you know, uh, with my orchestra, the Longueuil Symphony, we did uh, a very important tour during the pandemic. It was 120 concerts for the hospitals and the residences for you know, the elderly. This was very important to us because it made us play, you know, even though we couldn't uh, do normal concerts in uh, normal venues. Uh, but it also brought some kind of a spiritual vaccine way before there was a vaccine, you know. So in a way, we saved ourselves more than, than we, we, we saved uh, people, and, but we thought we were going as saviors. And so we learned a lot about this. And there, there's one piece that, you know, I don't know if you remember this kind of, uh, let's say, psychological uh, state of mind that we were all in during this, uh, the beginning, especially the beginning of the pandemic. We were very sensitive, all of us, you know, and very, um, we were listening to others who we were afraid. So, and there was one piece that we played for all those concerts, which is Amazing Grace. And it was a special moment when we would play this because people would, you know, let their, their feelings out. Lots of people were crying and, you know, because it, it, it triggers something it in you. Them. Yeah. So that piece is important for this. And then we, we, we also played it as uh, a piece that, that, that calls for, uh, something bigger than us, a solution to this, a human solution to all of this, uh, something with, with faith that, you know, all of this will, uh, will be over soon and we will be better people. So I don't know if we're two years after this, we are better people, but I keep playing it now because it just reminds me of those concerts and rem it reminds me why I play music so that the people around me can share light and joy and for myself to also you know be uh, feel these uh, you know these emotions so yeah it's it's just a reminder good for you okay third one that we've got playing right now the show must go on from the festival stradivaria in 2020 Tell us about that. Well, it was the first um, non-classical tune that I played on the violin, reversing, let's say, the, the creativity uh, of, of the composers, right? So basically this tune was born as, you know, a queen song. It's, it's, a, it's a pop, it's a rock song. And I made it into, uh, into something classical with the tools that, that, the symphony orchestra has at their disposition, you know, so all the instruments and the sound and, and all of this, no? And it was such a big success. Uh, we did this uh, more and more. We have an album now called Stradivarius, uh, Je me souviens, so I remember. And it's all, we, we've, we've done this reverse creativity many times and it works just so well because in the, in the end, classical music, is the universal language you know uh there is no uh th there there is no 
greater structure than classical music because pop music, rock music, jazz music are derivatives from uh, classical music. So a lot of the, the pop songs melodies are taken from Rachmaninoff or Beethoven or, you know, and, and so Show Must Go On also was very important the, during the pandemic because it was a message we were sending, like, you know, artists must be able to, to continue doing what they do best. So show must go on. Excellent. You made me think of uh, Yo-Yo Ma when you were giving your answer because he plays a great deal at Tanglewood. And he's a, a wonderful player that has spread himself across various different genres of music. He's played with people uh, in, in the jazz idiom. He's played with James Taylor. Of course, he does his own uh, classical compositions. Do you enjoy kind of spreading you know, yourself across various different idioms when you play? Absolutely. I, I, feel, I feel more free uh, every day because uh, for 20 years, I was kind of made into what I became you know with as a solo violinist you know it was very strict it was very rigid I was a soloist I needed to play the Beethoven concerto uh, the Tchaikovsky concerto which I played 150 200 times with various orchestras around the world and at some point I'm like well what am I bringing to this life you know to this world uh, yes I, I can play a decent Tchaikovsky concerto but uh, can I play it the best that I can do every night, probably not. Is there a limit to what my passion playing this piece? Uh, and the answer is yes, there is probably, if you, if you do the same thing, even if it's wonderful, it's something wonderful and monumental, it still becomes- uh, Repetitious. And so at some point, what I, to keep my, my mind alive, I thought I need to do more than one thing. And I need to have fun doing it. And to have fun doing something, you need to become kind of good. Because if you, if you, if, for example, a sport, if you're not able to really um, be an athlete or you know a half decent cycler or something, you cannot really enjoy the the sport. So it's the same thing for music. You cannot enjoy playing jazz if you don't understand it properly and if you don't make the effort to 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 merge into that that type of music so and also for me what's most important and where i feel the most uh, freedom is now i talk to the audience and it looks like really like an, a normal thing to say but in classical music musicians don't talk they just come on the stage, they bow, they play two hours of music. And if you're lucky, at the end, the conductor goes like, well, thank you for, for sharing these moments with us. We'll play an extra tune. Goodbye. That's it. That's your only right. con human contact to classical music musicians. And for me, this is just not enough. You know, there was a moment in life I said, no, I, I want to connect. I want to know what people like. I want for them to express uh, some emotions if they receive the emotions that I am giving or, or, or you know, sending their way. So it's a, it's a new ball game now. And I'm happy that other classical musicians start doing the same. But in, let's say in the old days, only the superstars 
could speak with the audience. You know, if, if you are Yo-Yo Ma, of course, you can have a chat for half an hour with your audience because you're Yo-Yo Ma, you know. But uh, now I think it's just more and more what is common. And I think also to be a good artist is not just to play good music. It's also to be a good communicator. So one has to work on this aspect of classical music. Young soloists of today, they have to train themselves not just to play perfect, but also to, to share with the people, the human beings that, that bought tickets to come and see them, you know? That's something. We have been speaking here with Alexander da Costa. Alexander, it's been a fascinating conversation for me. Even though I'm a musician, I am more or less a layman when it comes to the intricacies of classical music and performance, as you've been describing. You have busted a few myths for me and probably for people in the audience as well. I will never look at a conductor quite the same as you. I will never look at a baton quite the same again after I heard the story that it's a relatively new infusion into classical music. But it's been a fascinating uh, exposition with you, and I thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Robert. Thank you for having me. And now we're going to listen again to the song that I have written and that was playing underneath the introduction. We play it as well at the end. It's my song called Ma Petite Fleur. I want to thank you so much for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.